This is the Lost Mountain Baptist Church podcast. We exist to help all kinds of people find and follow Jesus. For more information about service times, giving, and upcoming events, check out our website, lmbc.us. We hope you enjoy this week's message. If you've uh, you've got a Bible with you, or maybe you follow along on your mobile device, or just follow along um, on the screens, that's okay. But if you've got your Bible with you, uh, go ahead and open to Colossians chapter 1, if you will, this morning. Colossians chapter 1. We will be in this passage, verses 3 through 8, at least this week and and next week. There's uh, a lot of um, richness here, a lot that God has to say to us in this passage Um, that not only spoke first and foremost to um, the believers in Colossae in the first century, but speaks to us in our location here today. Uh, If you've been here the last couple of weeks, you know that part of uh, Paul's passion and what stirred in him um, to write the letter to the Colossians, a group he hadn't met, a church he hadn't been to. It wasn't a church that he had started as he uh, traveled around the Mediterranean world planting uh, churches uh, through the power of the gospel and the Holy Spirit. Uh, but Epaphras, who had been uh, likely led to faith underneath Paul's ministry in Ephesus, had carried uh, the message of the gospel back to Colossae, um, had begun sharing with friends and family. Um, people's lives were changed, they were saved, little churches began to meet in homes, the church in Colossae was born. Um, and as it went along, Paul began to hear that in their city, in their time, like in our city, in our time, there were so many competing voices. I mean, anybody just get tired of the volume sometimes? Just the amount of people telling you this and that. Uh, well, the Colossians were, were, were having all kinds of competing voices just like we are today. And just like we have a tendency to do today, they were bringing them in and allowing them in, in ways to dilute their faith in Christ. Uh, to cause them to begin to lose power and to misunderstand uh, the sufficiency and the supremacy and the preeminence of Christ himself, that he was enough, that he was more than enough, that he was the way, the truth, and the life. Um, I've met across the years as a pastor um, an untold number of sort of disillusioned, discouraged men and women who claim the name of Christ who are followers of Jesus, but simply, uh, when they're honest, just wonder, shouldn't there be more to it than this? And one of the reasons I think that is, um, is because we have brought so many elements of our culture and elements of of other frameworks and worldviews into our faith that has kind of diluted the power that God has for us in the true gospel. And so what we want to do through this series in Colossians is to place ourselves before God and ask him to make straight the crooked ways in our minds, to purify and lift out the impurities in our hearts, and to get us back to the pure and true and powerful and transformational gospel. Um, Let's read Colossians chapter 1 verses 3 through 8 this morning. We always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all God's people, the faith and love that spring 
from the hope stored up for you in heaven and about which you have already heard in the true message of the gospel that has come to you. In some way or in the same way, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world, just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and truly understood God's grace. You learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf and who also told us of your love in the Spirit. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning truly, authentically, God, bringing all of who we are, God, our frustrations, our pain, our doubt, God, our joy, our excitement in who you are. God, I confess this morning freely and fully that there's nothing that I can say. God, there's nothing that I can do up here that comes from human intelligence or human wisdom or human preparation that can affect any change in in any of our lives. God, I'm dependent upon you. We're dependent upon you. So Holy Spirit, fill this place. Fill your, your word, make your written word, the living word this morning as we hear it. Interrupt us. Make the power and the truth of the gospel known to us in new and fresh and transformational ways. God, I ask expectantly, in Jesus' faithful name, amen. All right, let's go back and let's work through this just a little bit. And we're going to sort of root ourselves uh, a bit in verse five and then go back and I'll highlight some from verse three. Paul says, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Uh, The we here obviously is he and Timothy, if you look at the first of it, but I don't want you to make too much of that because mostly throughout um, this letter to the Colossians, Paul simply says, I. He simply says, I, this is Paul's heart and primarily Paul's thinking. And he says, I thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, part of what Paul's doing there is addressing an audience that is partially Jewish in background. And he's connecting with them their faith, their established faith in Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob with Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the one in whom Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were looking forward to, the one uh, the prophets spoke of. And Paul saying, I thank my God who is the same God we historically have shared, pledged allegiance to, been, been called into relationship and into covenant with through Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the one who's come, the one he promised. Because we've heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love you have for all God's people. Let me pause there for a minute. When God is at work in a community of people, it doesn't stay silent. We can't keep it silent. Part of the issue in so many of of our lives, much less our communities of faith, our churches uh, across our nation, is not only that we rarely share Jesus with anyone, a a verbal witness about Christ. And some of you uh, have probably heard the saying, I have, I've said it in the past, I just try not to now that, um, you know, we, we need to always be sharing the gospel and when necessary, use words. Can I just say, there is no sharing the gospel without words. The gospel is a spoken message. The gospel is a verbal announcement. 
right? It's, it's a declaration of something that has been. I may live a moral and ethical life. I may live a, a loving life. But that's not sharing the gospel if I can't explain why. What my hope is, right? And so Paul is saying all, all the way over here in Ephesus, which, you know, you think 10, 11, 12 miles, that's not very far, but try walking it all the time, right? Or, or maybe you got a donkey ride. Uh, it, it was different, you know? It's not like the believers of Colossae were texting Ephesus and saying, man, you, you can't believe all that God's doing here among us. Paul's saying, man, we've heard about what God's doing in your life. When God does a work, it is sure and firm. It changes us in time. And Paul's saying, we've heard about it. And then, he, and then he says two particular things they've heard about. Look in verse four. We've heard about your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all God's people. You cannot disconnect those two. Faith in Christ Jesus and the love for Jesus' people. Paul's saying, we, we've heard how uh, faith has taken root in your lives and it's bearing fruit. Your faith in Jesus Christ, the vertical relationship you have with God and the horizontal relationship you have with other believers. Can I just tell you, those are inseparable. Those are inseparable. This, this foolish notion of loving Jesus and not the church is like fairyland pixie dust kind of stuff. It's not real. It's not true. There's a book that came out uh, in 2007 entitled, They Love Jesus But Not the Church, kind of a manifesto on emerging generations. But can I tell you, you can't love Jesus who gave his life for his church and not like his church. Now, you cannot like some of the foolishness of the church. I'm on that wagon with you too. Right? Some of what uh, we institutionalize that should be a movement can be very frustrating. But when it comes to the people of God, which is the essence of the church, you can't love Jesus and not love his people, even though they may irritate you, even though you may irritate them. You just can't do it. When you're brought into this union with Jesus, what you love and what you delight in and what you value begins to be changed by him so that what you love and what you value and what you delight in becomes what he loves, what he values and what he delights in, or rather vice versa. I met and married Sharon 20 some odd years ago now, three, four, five, I think maybe we met. I'm not sure. Anyway, it was a while ago, almost a quarter of a century, I guess, since we first met. And there are all kinds of things that I notice and I pay attention to and I like and I love and I think about now that I wouldn't if it weren't for Sharon. I wouldn't think much about cotton if I hadn't married a girl from West Texas from Lubbock, still the cotton center of the world. I wouldn't think about Lubbock or Texas Tech or the Gilmore Girls or Tulips. <laughs> hey, and I don't love the Gilmore Girls, right? But some of it's not bad. The writing's really witty. But I would never have watched that on my own. Wouldn't have happened, right? You can't love Jesus without loving his people. You know what's interesting? There's a quote that is um, often attributed to Augustine, uh, fourth century uh, theologian, church father, uh, but it actually wasn't Augustine that said it. It was Cyprian, who was a, a third century bishop of Carthage, who was martyred in 258. And uh, Cyprian, in one of his writings on the unity of the church, on the unity of the church, said, he cannot have God for his father who does not have the church for his mother. 
He cannot have God for his father who does not have the church for his mother. Cyprian got it. Augustine would say it in even more, an even more bold way some 100 years later when he said, there is no salvation outside of the church. And, and Augustine wasn't saying that, that you and I decide who's in or who's out or that the, the church is sort of uh, dispensing with salvation, but he's saying God is saving a people, ultimately. He's saving individuals into this collective people that he's elected in Christ to spend eternity with him. There is no faith off on your own, right? Off on your own. Tell me I'm not the only person who hears this uh, from people somewhat regularly. Oh, you know, I'm a Christian. I just, you know, I don't really do the church. I'm not, you know. Be highly skeptical of that. How do you know? What, what rational basis can you or I have for believing we've been saved by God the God of the church, the church of God, as the New Testament says, over and over and over. The people called out by God, represented by communities of faith in covenant relationship with one another, practicing all of the one another's in the New Testament, bearing one another's burdens, forgiving one another, loving one another, caring for one another, speaking truth in love to one another. And on and on it goes. You, you've got no context for any of that by yourself. And Paul says, man, we've heard about your faith. And not just faith, right? Uh, in our day, it's sort of, um, uh, it's out of step with the culture um, to not attribute all faith, regardless of what it's in or what it's about, as equal, right? You believe in this, I believe in that. You're sincere, I'm sincere. Potato, potato, tomato, tomato, what matters is that we're sincere. Like I've heard that over and over and over in the last 10 to 20 years. What matters is that we're sincere. No, more than that matters, right? More than that matters. If I'm trying to go to Chicago and I leave here and get on a highway headed south, that matters, right? It, it doesn't matter how sincere I am in believing that I'm going to get to Chicago in a little while, right? You've heard it, it's, it's not the destination that matters, but the journey, so does the destination, right? It doesn't matter how nice your journey is if you wind up in the wrong place, if you wind up in the wrong place, right? Climb the ladder and find out it's leaning against the wrong wall. It matters. Paul is saying here, we don't just commend your faith in general. We commend your faith in Christ Jesus, in Christ Jesus. It is, it is this vertical faith in Christ Jesus that has resulted in the horizontal love for all God's people. Don't miss that. For all God's people. Not just the ones you like the most, right? But for all God's people. Um, N.T. Wright, New Testament scholar, says this. For Paul, the sure sign of grace at work was the fact of a loving community created out of nothing, of a love not restricted to those with whom one has a natural affinity, but which extends to all the saints. There's something, there's something in us. There's a unique connection that you and I have as genuinely born again followers of Jesus Christ, as children of God, redeemed by the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ with one another that cannot be replicated with people who don't have it. 
It doesn't mean we don't love them. It doesn't mean we're not in friendship and in relationship with them. We should be. I've said before that um, when, when we talk a lot about building uh, intentional, um, uh, significant, meaningful friendships with people who don't share our faith, people outside the church, every once in a while, a, a well-meaning person of faith will say something like, you know, they, it'll make them a little bit nervous if you push it uh, for a little while and they'll say, yeah, that's, that's true, that's true, you know, but your closest friends should always be Christians. And um, I always take from that that they don't have any non-Christian friends or they would know that there's just a level to which you cannot get with them that you can get with brothers and sisters in Christ because there is a different core in them than is in you. It's the same core that used to be in you, right? Paul would say, such were many of you before Christ found you and saved you and reconciled you to God. (laughs) Paul says, the love you have for all God's people. Um, Part of what Paul is getting at here is the reality that, that we're a spiritual family. And can we just, be, I mean, let's show of hands. How many of you have at least one nutty person in your extended family somewhere? Yeah, look at the hands. It's like 100%. You don't get that in a Baptist church. Yeah, we're a family, which means inside the family, you're gonna have a crazy uncle. You're gonna have a neurotic aunt. You're gonna have cousin Eddie, right? That's just how it is. That's here in this church, but it's here in the church down the street. And it's here in the church down the other street. Anywhere you go, you find weirdos. Because that's the nature of the human condition, right? We're all different. We all have idiosyncrasies. We all have things about us that are bizarre to others. And they have things that are bizarre to us. But what Paul is thanking God for is that through his grace and mercy, a faith has been born in the lives of these Colossian believers that is larger than their individual weirdness. They've embraced one another in Christ across Jew and Gentile lives, lines, slave and free, men and women coming together in house churches around the city of Colossae, praying, practicing communion, studying the word of God together. And Paul stirred up in his faith. Look at verse five. He attributes this faith in Christ Jesus and the love they have for one another, which he fleshes out as the faith and love that spring from the hope stored up for you. In heaven, and about which you have already heard in the true message of the gospel. What's amazing here is that that Paul presents the gospel almost as as an in, uh, um, in, impersonized impersonized not the word I'm looking for, but um, maybe one of you will think about it, almost like an actual human force, right? That the gospel is at work. The gospel is both the message and the messenger in a sense. Now he gets on down and he says there actually was a human messenger. There always is a human messenger by which God chooses to deliver the gospel. Even if someone's just reading the word, the human messengers were the human authors that God inspired and moved to write as they did. He's talking about, at the end, Epaphras here. But he's talking about the gospel as both the messenger and the message. There's a true power to it. 
There's something that when the Holy Spirit, um, when the Holy Spirit grabs hold of it and drives it past the person's mind and intellect into their heart, it produces new life. Personified is what I was looking for. Personified. Um, force. Almost like a, a human force. And faith and love here, you see faith, love, and hope, which is actually the normal um, order of those words in Pauline epistles. We think of uh, faith, hope, and love, um, but it is usually faith, love, and hope. I don't know that the, that the word order is significant here, but Paul definitely, he drops anchor here on this hope. Right in the center of this passage is the hope that out of it springs our faith in Christ Jesus and our love for one another. It's our hope stored up for us in heaven. Our hope stored up for us in heaven. Now hope here, Paul's not referring to the act of hoping, right? Your hope that's stored up for you in heaven is not dependent on, on how well you're hoping on any day of the week. What he's talking about here is the object of your hope, that which is hoped in. Jesus Christ himself and beyond. New Testament scholar Douglas Moo says this, that, that, and I think he's exactly right. This word hope here um, is not so much the act of, of hope, but the object of hope, the totality of blessing that awaits Christians in the life to come. The totality of blessing that awaits Christians in the life to come. Not the least of which is Jesus Christ himself. It's Jesus Christ himself. And Paul says that the hope that we have as followers of Jesus is a transforming hope. It drives us. It carries us through seasons that are dark and are painful. Sometimes you and I really aren't anchored in this hope until seasons are long and painful. And we start finding again that hope that is ours in Christ. All that is awaiting us, which has been stored up or sealed for you. It's a sure and certain thing. Paul says this gospel message in verse six has come to you in the same way the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and truly understood God's grace. Paul uses grace as a, as a, um, a synonym, a stand-in for the gospel here as he does often throughout his letters. But don't miss this. Paul is talking about the gospel as something to be heard and understood intellectually. It's a, it's a word. It's an intelligent message that's delivered. It's an announcement, a proclamation that confronts us. It confronts you this morning that Jesus Christ was born, that he lived a righteous life, that he died on the cross in your place, an atoning sacrifice for your sin without which you still stand under the condemnation of a righteous and a holy God. Apart from Jesus, there is no hope for you. There is no hope for me. And I don't want you to miss this in verse six. He talks about um, all that has been heard, received, that's bearing fruit, that's growing throughout the whole world, just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and truly understood in God's grace. All of the yous here are plural. All of the yous here are plural. The, the, the big deal to Paul here is the nature of the community life. He's not using it to address simply a group of individuals, you individuals. He's saying you as a community of faith are bearing fruit as a community of faith. 
As a community of faith, you're loving one another. Your faith in Jesus Christ is increasing. Your love for one another is increasing. Just as it has been from the very moment you heard again, right? You don't just hear individually and receive individually. That is important. That is necessary. But as you do, you're swept into the people of God, the church. Among you, among you, among you. But let's go back to verse three. Let's go back to verse three. Paul says, we always think who? Who does Paul say there? God. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Here's, here's what's interesting. If someone gives you a gift, you don't thank their cousin, right? I'll start saying you don't thank their mom. You may, their mom may have bought it for them. But you thank the person who created, who purchased, who ultimately gave the gift. This is very, very important. Paul doesn't thank the Colossians for their faith in Christ. Paul doesn't thank the Colossians for their love for one another. Paul thanks God. And this is a very significant aspect of Paul's theology and of faithful biblical theology. That behind the faith that you and I have, behind any transformation that's happening in our lives, is the goodness and the grace and the mercy and the will of God affecting that change in our lives. It doesn't mean we don't have a cooperative role to play. We do, we do. You should be in God's word regularly. And even if you don't feel like it, and even if you're not sure where to start, if you're not sure where to start, email me. Man, I'd, I'd love to go back and forth with you, helping you learn how to read scripture in both a way, uh, both in ways that reflect a serious study of it and a devotional transformational reading so that you hear God's spirit and sense God speaking to you, right? We should be praying. When Paul's talking about thinking his God, the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, always, whenever he prays for them, the verbiage here is very clear that Paul is a regular practicer of specific intentional times of prayer. And Paul, along with the other apostles and first century Christians, would very likely, those who had a Jewish background, have carried into their um, new understanding of Jesus as Messiah, this practice of praying in the morning and praying at noon and praying at the evening. Any of you ever found out your prayer doesn't last as long as you wish it would in terms of fuel for your own life, right? It runs out a little bit. We need to reconnect with God. Paul thanks God, and this is his practice. I wanna show you a little bit about this. Let's go, um, and you can just watch on the screen up here if you want to. Romans chapter one, verse eight. I want you to see this theology of Paul's is universal. Paul writes to the church in Rome, and he says, first, I thank God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is being reported all over the world. Now, why wouldn't Paul thank them? Why wouldn't he say, I thank you that your faith is being reported all over the world. Because Paul doesn't see them as the active agents in what's going on there. He sees God. He sees God. 1 Corinthians 1, beginning of verse four. 1 Corinthians 1, beginning of verse four. I always thank my God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. For in him, in him, 
You have been enriched in every way with all kinds of speech and with all knowledge. God, thus confirming your testimony, our testimony about Christ among you. Paul is saying to the church in Corinth, man, you're, you guys are really gifted as a body. Really gifted. You've been enriched in every way, in all kinds of speech and with all kinds of knowledge. But I'm not grateful to you for that. I'm grateful to God. One of the, the hardest turns for you and I to make, even, and I would say especially, longtime followers of Christ who've been in the church for a long time, is to get back to the place of true biblical theology where God is at the center and not us. Where God is at the center and not you. God is the center of the world. God is the center of human history. God is the center of scripture. Not human beings needing to be redeemed. God is at the center of the church. Not us. But what's amazing in this, the upside down way that, that gospel truth comes to us the more we embrace that, the more we live for the glory of God, not our own comfort, not what others are doing for us at any given moment, the freer we are, the more joyful we are, the happier we are, because the less entitled we are, the freer we are. When you're living for God's glory, it doesn't matter the circumstances. It doesn't mean you enjoy painful circumstances. But it means your only question is, how can I glorify God in this? And you set free. It is true that the narrow road is the road to life. It's the road to life. Paul says, I thank God. One more, let's do Philippians. Philippians chapter one. Paul writes in Philippians chapter one, starting in verse three. I thank God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel. From the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. This is plural too. Until the one who began a good work in you, until the one who gave birth to you as a church, I know will carry it on and complete the good work that he's doing. I'm confident in this. But Paul doesn't thank them. He doesn't even thank them for their partnership in the gospel. Wouldn't that be natural? I mean, isn't that natural to say, I want to thank you for your partnership in the gospel from the very beginning until now. He doesn't see that ultimately as their activity. It is the activity of God through them. He says, I thank God. Can I just say this morning, church, this is the only way it can be because apart from the work of God, you and I are spiritually dead. Dead men and women. Dead men and women don't understand anything. Dead men and women don't receive anything. Dead men and women don't invite anybody into their hearts. Dead men and women don't make any decisions. Apart from Christ, we can't even comprehend the things of God. If I go back just for a minute to 1 Corinthians chapter two. 1 Corinthians chapter two, beginning in verse 10, Paul says this. These are the things God has revealed to us 
by his spirit. Paul's saying we can't just discover this kind of stuff, this spiritual truth, the, the, the power of a crucified savior, a suffering servant has to be revealed by God through his spirit. The spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except their own spirit within them? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. What we have received is not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God so that we may understand what God has freely given us. God has given us something that in our, our own dead pattern of thinking, warped by sin, held by sin, we can't even comprehend without a work of God. Verse 13, this is what we speak, not in words taught to us by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit, explaining spiritual realities with Spirit-taught words. Verse 14, And don't miss this. The person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God. Isn't that, isn't that interesting? The person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, but considers them foolishness and cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the Spirit. God has to initiate a work in a human heart and life for us to even understand the spiritual realities of the gospel. And this is confirmed throughout the New Testament. Remember, Nicodemus kind of sneaks into Jesus at night. He's like, hey, I got some questions. You know what I need to do here or there? And Jesus tells him he, something has to happen, doesn't he? He says, you have to what? You have to be born again. And Nicodemus is like, whoa, let's not get crazy, right? I can't like enter my mom's womb and, and come out again. I don't know what you're saying. And Jesus is saying, you can't, you can't receive the kingdom of God. You can't come into a relationship with God unless you've been born both of water, of man, of a woman, and of the spirit. And even Nicodemus is like, man, this stuff is whack. I don't, I don't understand what's going on. Jesus says there, there must be a regeneration in a person's life. God must get in and, and do an initial work for us to even understand and receive anything. Jesus says in John 6, that no one comes to him, but that the Father who sent him brings them to him. Remember Jesus saying to his apostles, you guys didn't choose me, not just as apostles, but to everybody he's about to send out. You didn't choose me, I chose you. I chose you and I appointed you. I decreed that your lives will bear good fruit. This is what Paul's getting at. This is why he doesn't think the Colossians, why he doesn't think the Romans, why he doesn't think the Philippians, why he doesn't think the Corinthians. He thinks God. God is the one doing the work. Can I tell you, this is the source of the hope that is stored up for you in heaven. It, it's not on how hard you hope in it, it's not on the, the energy or passion or clarity of your hoping. It's in the one who called you, redeemed you, is sanctifying you, and will eventually glorify you through the power of the Holy Spirit, just as it was with Jesus Christ. Part of the reason that we do communion every week is that it is a, a weekly reminder 
that we haven't done anything for God. He's done everything for us. And everything you need to be healed, to be whole, to be reconciled with God, to find the peace that you're so struggling to find in every other place. That's part of the message. That's central to the message of Colossians is everything you're trying to find everywhere else is found only and supremely in Jesus Christ. And when we take that bread and we dip it in the juice and we receive that, for those of us who are baptized believers and feel led to do that each week, we're reminding ourselves that the shed blood and broken body of Jesus Christ is God's way of saying on the cross and through the resurrection, it is done, it is enough. It's finished, it's done. I don't need any activity from you. I'm going to call you into a relationship with me. The Holy Spirit's going to convict you of your sin so that you're not just convicted about what you're doing, you're convicted about your status as a sinner before God who stands condemned outside of Jesus Christ. But by God's grace and mercy, can you be, can be brought into a relationship with him. That's why, that's why it doesn't get monotonous or routine to do communion every week. It just puts us in line with most of the rest of the church around the world and throughout church history. We preach every week, we sing every week, we pray every week. We need this. We need to be reminded, you need to be reminded this morning that the hope that, that you're called to, the hope that you have stored up for you in all that awaits you in Christ in the life to come, that fuels your faith in Jesus Christ and your love for one another is rooted in the God that Paul thanks, who called you into a relationship with him and is making you new. As the band begins to make their way back up here and we prepare uh, to respond, we prepare to respond to God, both in worship and by participating in communion. I wanna challenge you, next week, next week we're celebrating baptism here. Somebody in here may need to make your, your profession of faith in Jesus Christ, your understanding that God has saved you, has reconciled you to him. You may need to make that public. The way that you do that is through baptism. It's the way that you agree with God in obedience, that he's called you out of darkness and into light. That he's changed you. That you're walking with him through the death to an old way of living and into new life in Christ. If that's you, let us know so we can contact you this week. You can check on the back of your connection card that you wanna be baptized and we'll be in contact with you this week. You can email us, let us know. Let's stand. And I wanna invite you as we worship, as we participate in communion, Man, I just, I pray that your spirit will be lifted. And I invite you just to think on the goodness of God that called you out of darkness into light, that saved you, that's cleansed you. Who's cleansed you from all your sin? Past, present, future? It's done. Hear God say it's done. Cease all your religious striving and attempts to, to please him and to make yourself whole. And just steady your heart on the supremacy of Christ and Christ alone. Let's pray.
God, I thank you, as Paul did so many centuries ago. God, I thank you for the generosity of this church. God, I thank you for the long witness of this church and this community. God, I thank you for brothers and sisters in this church who are learning to love across all kinds of different human barriers. God, I thank you for the grace that you pour into our life as a community of faith and our lives individually through the gospel. Do your work in us, Holy Spirit. Draw us back to you. Renew us. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks so much for joining us online at the Lost Mountain Baptist Church podcast. For more information about service times, giving, and upcoming events, check out our website, lmbc.us.